on July 30th, 1967. A young lady, just 17 years old, was enjoying a day of fun at the Chesapeake Bay. She took a dive into the water, having misjudged the water's depth, and her head hit the ground in the bottom of the bay. She fractured two of her cervical vertebrae, and from that day forward, to this day, nearly 54 years later, Johnny Erickson Tata has lived as a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down. And whether it's the story of Johnny or countless others, whether it's the atrocity of the Holocaust, the kidnapping of nearly uh, 300 Chibok schoolgirls in Nigeria, the horror of slavery in the United States and around the globe, the imprisonment and torture that many face to this very day for their faith, whether it's cancer, abuse, the untimely loss of loved ones, unanswered questions about hard trials, mental and emotional struggles, etc. The world has, for thousands of years, sought the answer to this question. If there is a God, why do evil things happen? Or maybe more specifically, more to the point, where is He when evil things happen? Where is God when bad things happen? I'm going to guess that 99% of you have had some thought along those lines at some point in your life. Is that a fair assessment? Where is God when bad things happen? Many have taken a stab at answering this question. We can account for the presence of evil and pain on earth, and I would say our faith makes the best case for the presence of evil and pain on this earth. This is kind of a sidebar, but I, but I would say there are many people who, who ask the question, if there's a God, why do bad things happen? Who could not simply answer the question, how do you determine what a bad thing is? Who taught you that? By what standard do you judge good and evil? Many have taken a stab at, at answering this, and, and we know that there is a presence of evil and pain on this earth because of sin, because of Satan, because of the forces of darkness, because we live in a world under a curse. But where is God when evil happens? Does he see? Does he care? Is he powerless to stop it? If somebody were to ask you, and I'm guessing again, I won't say 99%, but a large percentage of you at some point in your life have been asked by somebody, where, if you believe in this God, where is he? What's he doing when these things happen? Name the situation. It could be personal, it could be local, it could be national, it could be global, but where is he? 
What would you say? What have you said when, they, when that question has been asked? Where is he? The answer to this question is what some people refer to as a theodicy. That's a big word. Theodicy, a justification of God's righteousness in the face of evil. I'm not going to, it's kind of a sidebar, but this is a topic that is, is worth studying scripture. This is worth reading books, considering how they point us to scripture. Uh, I read a wonderful book uh, last year that I would highly recommend, uh, but just be aware that you're going to need about a, a year to read it. Uh, maybe not. Uh, many of you read faster than me. The book is called What About Evil? The author's name is Scott Christensen. Uh, I I've, I've thought it was my favorite book that I read last year. Wonderful book. Um, but the question remains, where is God? And as we wrapped up Genesis last week, Joseph's brothers feared him greatly once their father Jacob died. They thought that now jo Joseph was going to be free to take his revenge on them for their selling him into slavery many years before. They ask him, they go to Joseph. Uh, we're going to read this passage, 50, 15 to 21. If you have your Bibles open, Genesis chapter 50, or if you don't, open them. Genesis 50, 15 to 21. The brothers are going to go to Joseph on behalf of, quote unquote, their father, and ask Joseph to forgive them. And Joseph's answer to them, which we will read in a minute, along with many other examples in Scripture, give us some guiding principles as believers in Christ to answer the question of where God is in the evils that we face. This morning I want us to consider three truths that Joseph points to that comfort us, or I pray they will comfort us in trial. Three truths. God is present, God is sovereign, and God is good. Three things, present, sovereign, good. Let's read chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit's power, you would speak through this weak vessel, Lord, that you would... Show us yourself. Show us ourselves and show us Christ. Lord, that we might know you. 
the sovereign God, the one true God, and that we might know the hope that we have through Jesus Christ in greater measure. Father, may my words be faithful to your word this morning, and may our hearts be soft to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. God is present, God is sovereign, and God is good. Many times when people attempt to explain where God is in the midst of suffering and in the face of evil, they want to remove God from the picture entirely. It's almost like an inclination that some have to apologize for God, right? To say, like, he, he didn't know anything about this. This was, this was not uh, part of his plan. They say he, he had nothing to do with it. He had to react to it. A couple things on those types of explanations. First and foremost, honestly, you've studied scripture, many of you. Is that the picture we get from the Bible? That God is absent when things go wrong? Is that the picture we see? Can't find him. Don't know where God is. He's hiding. Do we see a God who is constantly reacting to problems that arise? Is our God a reacting God? Like somebody does something, I got to react to it. I got to figure out a a new plan. I got to adjust. Is he a reacting God? Is he a God who has to put the pieces back together once everything falls apart after he sees how it all plays out? He says, oh my my goodness, I didn't know. But now I got to fix it. No. We see a God throughout the scriptures who is present in all situations. And secondarily to that, far secondarily to that, okay, I want want to be really clear. The most important thing about that question is, is it true? Is God present in times of pain and evil and struggle and suffering? Does the Bible tell us that he's present? And I believe the answer to that is yes. But secondarily to that, is it a comforting picture of God? A God who is not there when things go wrong? A God who is absent from our trials? Who has to react to our problems? I say and acknowledge, and I'm going to attempt to answer, I I understand that God's presence in the midst of evil carries with it a set of questions of its own. But God's lack of presence, if I thought God's not with me, if scripture taught God's not there when when things go wrong, it renders the struggles of this life in some ways meaningless, useless, and hopeless. If there is no purpose to them, if he's always reacting to them, then they don't have meaning. They don't have purpose and they leave us without hope. Joseph did not see it that way. Joseph saw God's presence in his sail to Egypt, right? He doesn't say, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself here. I'll I'll stop. He saw God's hand with him in the darkest trials on the days when maybe he wondered if there was any good coming God was with him. 
how frequently in the in-between times, the, the time between his sale and his exaltation, did we talk about Joseph giving the glory to God, seeing God as with him, present with him, when Potiphar's wife was going after him, when he's interpreting the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, when he's interpreting the dream of Pharaoh. This is a man who saw that the Lord was with him in the valley, in the painful moments, in the prison, that the Lord was with him. Joseph believed that God was there when he was sold And he believed that he was there when he languished for 13 years. That's a long time. How many times in Scripture do we see the Lord reminding his people? If I had time, go through it over and over and over. Reminding his people, I am with you. I am with you. If you study that in the Old Testament, the phrase, I am with you, it's everywhere. I am with you. They say, when Moses says, but I can't, I can't do it. What does God say to him? I'm with you. When Jeremiah says, I, who am I? Who am I? What does God say? I'm with you. I'm not worried about your power. I'm with you. He is with us. Where was the Lord when Johnny Erickson's head hit the floor? of the Chesapeake Bay. He was with her. He was with her. And I understand that that carries with it a bunch of questions. But he was not absent. And he is not absent when we struggle, when we are in trial, when we are in pain. But above and beyond that, Joseph reminds his brothers not just that God was present, but that God is sovereign. It's important to know that God is present. But if he's present and powerless, it's not much comfort. But if he's present and sovereign, lots of comfort to take. We heard the words earlier from Babylonian king, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? None. Far from being reactionary here, The Lord rules over all. We see it in the words of Joseph, right? You, brothers, meant evil against me. But what does he say? Does he say, but God reoriented it for good? Is that what he says? Does he say that? He does not say that. What does he say? He uses the same word. He doesn't say, you meant it for evil, but God figured out what you did and then made a new plan and it turned out for good. He said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. 
And we learn a couple things in this phrase, and I want to be really, really, really clear as as I go through the rest of this message. I I think it's worth taking five minutes to talk about two important things. I I want you to be crystal clear as I answer the question of where God is in the evils that we face. First, what Joseph's brothers did was pure evil. It was evil. They were not, uh, they weren't thinking like, hey, if we kill Joseph, or you know what, let's rework our plan. If we sell Joseph, we're going to be accomplishing the will of God. That was not entering their minds. What Joseph's brothers did was pure evil. They could not, upon hearing Joseph's words, take up the argument of Romans chapter 3. Paul says, uh, but if, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? God forbid, right? Joseph's brothers committed a heinous evil. Joseph says it. You meant it for evil. Your actions were evil. Joseph's brothers were, pause, evil men committing evil deeds, and they were deserving of wrath. They were deserving, in this story, they knew they were deserving of Joseph's wrath, right? They knew it. They had to bow their knees at his mercy. Hope that he would be merciful. All wickedness and evil is deserving of God's wrath, including your own wickedness and evil. And all of it will be dealt with. I'm mindful this morning that there might be some here who are not believing in Christ. And and when I I say, I, I believe I have great hope to offer, for those who are believers in Christ, that there is great hope in the midst of the, the sufferings and the trials of this life. But, but I plead with you, if you're here and you're saying, I don't even know what I believe about this Jesus, I would tell you that the sufferings and the trials of this life are meant to open your ears to say, this is as good as it gets. Seek the mercy of the Lord while he may be found. These pains are just a dim echo of the pains that await those who ultimately reject the Lord, those who ultimately decide not to follow Christ, not to believe in Christ. These pains are nothing compared to the pain that awaits eternally. And it may very well be that he is using the pains and trials of your life to wake you up, to look to him and find mercy from him. And it it is available. Mercy is available. Can you hear me today? Mercy is available. But none of us in our wickedness will be able to say, but my evil deeds brought about a greater good. Sin will be punished and sinners are liable for their sins. So that's one thing I want to make crystal clear. The other side of that coin that I want to make really, really, really crystal clear is that while God is sovereign, he is by no means the author of evil. He never sins. 
The Lord does not sin. The Lord does not tempt anyone to sin. We see in play, I, I listed up like four verses, but Psalm 26, 5, Proverbs 8, 13, Jeremiah 7, 31, Jeremiah 32, 35. The Lord hates evil. He is not the author of evil. He is not the inventor of evil. He despises wickedness. And so as we come to a biblical understanding of God's presence in evil, we must never be found either excusing the wickedness of wicked people or accusing God of wickedness. If your theological position leads you to either of those two places, you are wrong and you need to check your theology. However, the Lord is present and sovereign over the evils we face. While Joseph's brothers meant their actions for evil, God meant them for good. Same word, not reoriented, not reacted, meant them for good. And we're going to get to the goodness portion in a couple minutes. But it is of great value. Do you take comfort today in the fact that the Lord reigns over all? The things that you don't understand, the things that you do not know, that you can say, but I know that my God reigns over all. Is that comforting to you today? It is great to consider that the Lord is ruler over all, even over all wickedness and pain, and evil. Evil and pain are the byproducts of a world under a curse because of sin, but he rules over them all. We see it in Job chapter 2, right? As Job is in the midst of losing almost everything he has, except, of course, for his lovely wife. Job's wife says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Beautiful. It's a beautiful line. And Job says what? Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Ecclesiastes 7.14, the writer says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God made one, made the one as well as the other. Of this very situation, the story of Joseph in Psalm 105 We read, when he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he, God, had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. God did it. God sent a man ahead of them. Joseph says this to his brothers in in Genesis chapter 45, right? God sent me ahead to preserve life. There is no excusing God. He doesn't need to be excused. There is no removing him from the situation. No saying that he didn't know. He knew. Joseph knew. And I pray that we know. That he was at work in the selling of Joseph. He was doing a miracle through the selling of Joseph. Johnny Erickson Tata was told a few years after her diving accident by her friend Steve Estes, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I think, I mean, 10 words. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. 
His sovereign power is at work in all things, even the evils you face. But the sovereignty of God, even that, is not necessarily good news. As a matter of fact, at first, it's terrible news that he's sovereign over all, right? Because we're all going to have to answer to him. It's terrible news for people who routinely reject him, reject his counsel, reject his law, reject his purposes. But I want you to know today, God is present, God is sovereign, and God is good. Joseph told his brothers that this heinous act of theirs was meant by God for what? Good. Meant by God for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Joseph's sale was going to become God's means of the salvation of many people. Of Joseph's people and of people from the nations. We talked about it last week. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we endure trials of various kinds, we must know and be fully assured that our sovereign God is also a decidedly good God. And when we are tempted to believe or think that he is not good or that he is not sovereign, we must first glance at the place where the absolute sovereignty and the unassailable goodness of God come together most vividly. Where do you think that is? What's that? At the cross. How can we know that Romans 8.28 is true for believers in Christ? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How do we know this to be true? Because we, we serve a God. We worship a God who sent His Son to submit to the most heinous evils people could carry out. And He did it for us. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus said to his disciples, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. By whom? By his Father, the Lord. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Getting back to our previous point. In Acts chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read a few different passages in Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter, preaching the sermon on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Chapter 3. Verse 13, Peter again, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, 
glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over. So God glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Chapter 4. The apostles are praying, the believers are praying that the Lord would grant them boldness. I'm just going to read 27 and 28. This is a part of their prayer. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. By the wickedness of men's schemes, the Lord accomplishes a great purpose, a salvation greater than the one Joseph's family experienced. Upon him, upon Jesus, upon the perfect Lamb of God, who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace with God. Jesus Christ came at just the right time, the time sovereignly orchestrated and was handed over by wicked men who did not know that they were advancing the will of God. This Jesus was nailed to the cross and killed. Killed not for his own crimes, but for ours. He was dying for the ones who were rejecting him. He was dying for the ones who were nailing him to the cross. He was dying for the ones who sold him out. He was dying for them. And he was killed by the definite plan of God. Killed to rescue us from our hell-bound trajectory. Killed that we might have forgiveness. A forgiveness better than the one Joseph's brothers experienced. They were forgiven and assured peace for the rest of their days on earth. But the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ is one that lasts into eternity. One that gives a righteousness to us that we do not have. Killed that we might be declared righteous before God through faith in His shed blood. Killed that we might have the hope of life everlasting in His presence because the one who was killed did not stay dead. No, he was raised and he lives and reigns, ever pleading before the throne of God for those who are his brothers and sisters through faith. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that the Lord sovereignly orchestrated this wonderful good for all who believe in the midst of a heinous atrocity, no greater atrocity ever committed Mankind's attempt to do what we've been trying to do since we left the garden. Kill God. Have you ever thought about that? Mankind is on the eternal quest to kill God. To get rid of Him. To not have Him be ruling 
and reigning over us. We see it in Genesis. We see it throughout the scriptures. And here, vividly displayed, mankind is going to try to kill God. And by that act, becomes, he becomes the means by which God accomplishes the greatest good this world will ever know. A good that the redeemed of the Lord will sing about for all of eternity. If he went to those lengths to accomplish that good, can he be trusted with the trials we face now? What do you think? You know he can. Can he be trusted when we don't know the answers? He doesn't promise the answers. You know that, right? I can't speak to why this happened to these people or why this happens to me often. We don't always get the answers. But as we move toward a close this morning, I I just want to throw a few things your way. I'm aware that many of us are facing trials that make us wonder at times where God is and what he's doing. And if we're not facing him now, we've faced him in the past or we will face them in the near future. We are not exempt from trials. And because God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, we can trust that in all things he continues to be present, sovereign, and good. And we might not see the good, but just consider as we move to a close, brothers and sisters in Christ, just consider some of the great good that he might be bearing in your times of trial. I listed five things. You'll probably come up to me after with 10 more. In your times of trial, God's glory will be seen. Through times of pain and evil days, Have you considered what a wonderful witness to the grace and glory of God it is when believers endure through great seasons of trial? I'll I'll bet this. As I wrote those words and I thought about myself, right? So here's what I just said. Have you considered what a wonderful witness to the grace and glory of God it is when believers endure through great seasons of trial? And this was the immediate response I had internally. I like it when it happens to other people. And yes, I see the glory of God when others endure suffering, right? Have you seen others endure great suffering and trial and praise the Lord for their testimony? Yes? It's harder when we say like, all right, well then, Lord, if that's what it it takes to show off the greatness of your glory, then go ahead, give it to me. But consider that. The trials you face today. The trials you face this week. Consider how the Lord may use you. How he might use evil committed against you to show off his greatness. Again, that doesn't excuse the one who commits the evil. But that he might show off his greatness. The glory of God was clearly seen through the sufferings of Joseph. The sufferings of Job. The sufferings of Johnny Erickson Tata. The sufferings of Jesus. He will show himself off through your sufferings as well. By his grace. 
Second thing, he will continue his lifelong project of making you more like Christ through trials and pain. This is the great good that's described in Romans 8.28, right? God works all things for good. What is the good? Conformity to the image of his son. That's the work he's doing. He disciplines those he loves. He relentlessly seeks to cleanse us from all impurity, all unrighteousness. And oftentimes he does so through allowing trial, through bringing trial. His great goal is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. And we know that one day we will be fully conformed. John says in 1 John, right? We will be like him because we will see him as he is. But until that day, the Lord labors long, relentlessly, tirelessly, and please be encouraged, he doesn't give up. He doesn't throw you away when you're not all that you ought to be. He keeps working out his purposes of making you more like Christ. And often it is through trials by which he makes us more like Christ. Third thing, he will make you see your need for him in trials and in pain. It is part of the human condition, sadly, that the greater our prosperity, the greater our pain-free existence, the less we think we need the Lord. We can be even tempted to live as if we are saving ourselves, as, we res- as if we rescue ourselves. We are keeping ourselves saved. We are pretty good, after all. Look how good things are going right now. Things are great. I don't need him as much. False. He makes us to see our need for him through trials and pain. We need him all the time. We sang it in the beginning of the service, right? Blessed be your name. Good times, bad times. We need him always. But oftentimes he uses trials to remind us we need him. And that he is there recognizing that we need to keep running back to the foot of the cross over and over, recognizing that we have nothing without the Lord, that we never grow out of needing the Lord. Christian maturity does not mean I need the Lord, the Lord less. Christian maturity is actually quite the opposite, is recognizing my need for him every day more. Maybe your trials have caused you to run from him. Hide from him. Think he's mad at you. Or maybe you're mad at him. The call of Christ is the same. Turn to him. Lay these burdens at the foot of the cross where we see the amazing sovereignty and the unassailable goodness of God collide for us. Rest in the loving arms of the good shepherd Casting your cares on him because he cares for you. Fourth thing. God will use your trials to bless others. This is tangential to point one. God will use your trials to bless others. We see it so clearly in Joseph's life how his trial brought about a great salvation for many, right? How about the story? Do you know the rest of the story of Johnny Erickson Tata? 
Has the Lord used her head hitting the floor of the Chesapeake Bay for it to accomplish any good purposes in this world? A few. Johnny Erickson Tata has had an influence on millions of people to whom she would not otherwise have shared the gospel with had her head not hit that floor on July 30th, 1967. I was reading some of the stories. Have you read her autobiography or any of her other stuff? I mean, I was just reading some of the stories this week of the letters that people send to her who have similar experiences. Teenagers who are saying, my life is over and I don't want to live anymore. And for her to be able to minister the gospel as a woman who is now, I guess she's, I didn't do the math, uh, 70 something ish, 71. We'll call her 71. The Lord will use your trials to bless others. If you, if you allow that, if you pray that he would use those trials to be a blessing to others. Do you believe? So you can hear the story of Johnny Erickson Tata and be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, she ministers to millions of people. Do you believe that your suffering, your trials, and the evils we all face as believers may be used to teach others about the goodness of our Lord? Do you believe that? What if your pain was used by the Lord to stir the heart of another? What if your, me, your pain was the means by which God used somebody or caused somebody to seek after him and ultimately to find salvation through Christ? Would it be of value then? Would you say, you know what? All right, the pain is worth it. The trials are worth it if the gospel of Christ would go forward through my trials. If it would be a blessing to others. What if you don't see it? So Johnny Erickson Todd, I can see that, uh, that she's been a blessing to many. What if you never get to see it this side of glory? And you just suffer and praise the Lord in the midst of it and preach the gospel in the midst of it and you never know. Is it worth it? Is he worth it? It, it gives purpose to our trials to know that they are not meaningless. The fifth thing, he will... He will use the trials and evils of this life. We sang it. In Jordan's stormy banks I stand, right? He will use the trials and evils of this life to prepare you for a glory that you cannot imagine. This is not, this, this earth as it's presently constructed is not our final home. We await the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Peter says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our struggles bless us by reminding us that we are not yet home. But we will be home one day. Right? The old C.S. Lewis line, if I find in myself the truth that, the, that nothing, I'm watching it, I know, that the, there's a desire in me that nothing in this world satisfies, that the most reasonable assumption is what? That I was made for another world. And the sufferings of this life remind us that we are not yet home, but we will be home. We were never meant to be fully comfortable here. Never meant to be fully at home here because we were made for another place. Brothers and sisters, the bottom line is that nothing, why, why would I spend time talking about God's present, sovereign, and good in the face of evil? Because I want you to know that nothing is wasted in God's economy. Not one tear, not one trial, not one ounce of suffering is wasted in the economy of God. None of it is meaningless. None of it is senseless. None of it is without purpose. All of it has purpose. All the trials, all the pains, all the groans, they all have meaning. And they all happen by the plan and in the shadow of a God who is present, sovereign, and good. He had, plan- he had plans for Joseph. He had plans for the world through Joseph. And he gave his son for us all. By his definite plan for our great good. Therefore, he can be trusted when the world shakes all around us and within us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great sovereign care for us. We thank you that you are in the heavens and you do all that you please. And we thank you that it pleased you to send your son to be the propitiation for our sins. Lord, if there are some here who have not believed today, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would see great need, that the trials of this life are are, are a voice calling out to wake up, see that we have rejected you, turn to you before it is too late and find in Christ forgiveness and eternal hope. Thank you that you promised that to all who believe. And Father, for we who have believed in Jesus Christ, remind us, it is easy to sit and talk and nod our heads, and for me to nod my head and say, yes, I know these things are true, but it is hard when we go through trials. 
It is hard when we experience pain. Make us a steadfast people. Pointing one another to Christ over and over and over again. We need you and we need one another. Father, would you make us strong and in times of trial and in seasons of pain and in seasons of great joy and blessing, may your name be glorified in and through us. All as we await our truest hope, the day when there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sadness, no more sickness, but we will be with you forever and ever and reign with you forever and ever in a kingdom of righteousness. May our eyes be focused there. In Jesus' name, amen.